0: Good morning. I want to, in light of the report of giving that you just heard, I want to thank you for your financial generosity that makes all of that giving possible. I don't think, in uh, except for one time in the 20-plus years I've been teaching this class, we've ever asked for money. And yet it's always there, and we give everything away. I mean, nothing goes to anything except for um, charitable causes like you just heard about, and I'm very, very grateful for that. So uh, how how many of you went at either the 8 or 11, 8.30 or 11 o'clock service last Sunday? Okay. So, uh, Dr. McDonald came to my office this week and said he's worked out my severance package. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me that, in uh, he said that the, in 15 years I had to clean out my desk. So I guess that's good, that'll be long enough, that'll be long enough or we'll be in 15 years. So. Um, grateful that you are here. It would be very lonely up here without you. And so let's just begin in silence. Just take a deep breath and get here. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing, grace be in our ears and in our hearing, grace be in our mouths and in our speaking, may grace be in our hearts and in our understanding, and may grace be at our ends and at our departing. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. So um, I I have been using what most folks know as the Lord's Prayer as a stimulation for crafting these talks lately, and uh, doing so is one of the ways I have of contributing to religious literacy, and um, frankly, doing so is a way that provides me kind of a roadmap of knowing what I'm going to be talking about next, and having... Having that roadmap is very helpful for me because I'm a seven on the Enneagram and always thinking, planning down that that direction. So um, just so that you will be informed about that, it is my intention to interrupt this work on the Lord's Prayer Uh, after today. We're going to take a break in it, and next Sunday I'm going to begin a two-part mini-series. Uh, which I'm calling the first Christmas, which I'm stealing that title from a book that was co-authored by uh, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. They were great friends. Both of those men have been in this room teaching Borg on several occasions. Uh, Crossan here and also uh, he preached across the, the plaza. Uh, Borg never had that opportunity. Um one time, uh, I met both of these guys, uh, first of all, through an invitation that Jim Bankson had set up, and then uh, through tapes that he had given me. You remember cassette tapes? That's how long ago it was. Uh, and then got involved in Jesus Seminar and all that, all that stuff. So um, they were great friends. Borg died a few years ago. And uh, I told him once at one of the Jesus Seminar meetings, I said, I want you to know that I plagiarize I I mean borrow your material (laughs) and he just put his arm around my shoulder and said borrow freely my friend borrow freely so this is a great book it's really accessible and what I mean by that is that it's easy to read it's quick to read uh, and and I'll be riffing off of this book this is a this book is a bookend to the first book that they wrote, which is called "The Last Week," which is their take on um, the last week in the, in the Easter in the Christian calendar. Christmas is the um, second most celebrated liturgical holiday in the world, more than uh, Ramadan, more than anything else. There's, This uh, is second most, not the first most. And Christmas is the only religious holiday that is also a federal holiday. And um, I think it may be the most revered holiday in light of our country's national religion, which is consumerism. (laughs) And so this is the holiday that gets it all. And I really wish you would read this. It would... Uh, it would uh, help all all of that. In that regard, I want to let you know that there is a service of Advent and Carols this afternoon at 5 o'clock. Prior to that, there's an opportunity to walk the Labyrinth, if you've not done that here. And um, I know that several people have said it, and I've said it multiple times. We have the best choir that exists. And all the choirs, the children's choirs and the treble choir, and our musicians will be um, on stage this afternoon at 5 o'clock. It's a wonderful way to start Advent. This is the first Sunday in Advent. We have a very, very short Advent season this year because Christmas Christmas Eve is on the fourth Sunday in Advent. So uh, we have next Sunday, which will be the 10th, the next Sunday, which will be the 17th. Then the next Sunday will be Christmas Eve, and we will not meet here. You will have five opportunities to worship here on Christmas Eve. And uh, the more you take advantage of that, the better accommodations you will have in the afterlife you believe that? No, that's not true. There will be a worship service on that Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, and then there will be four usual Advent services, Christmas Eve services. Uh, I think they're at 2, 4, 6, and 8. I think that's when they are. That that right? Okay. Then the next Sunday will be uh, Christmas Eve. New Year's Eve, and we will not meet, that's a class then either. That was a decision that was held by the church, more or less, so we will not meet then. So I would like for you to know that. So um, next Sunday, Dr. Holly, Holly and I will be introducing the book and talking about introducing the Christmas story. And um, then the next Sunday I'll finish that, and that'll be our last Sunday for this year. So after the first of the year, I want to come back and pick up on a couple of phrases from the Lord's Prayer that we have not touched on. Uh, one will be on forgiveness, which was the biggest topic that Jesus spoke to—the first or second, depending on how you rank things—in the Jesus narratives. And then we will talk about the second thing that we've not talked about at the Lord's Prayer, which is community, um, and that's why we're in such a mess we're in today. So I've decided to revisit the Lord's Prayer for a number of reasons. Um, I say revisit because I first did a series on the Lord's Prayer in here at the beginning of 2007. You know, some of you may think that, well... If you're a speaker and you've spoken for 30, 40, 50 years and you have to speak again, then you can just go back and get something you've done in the past and resurrect it and give it again and you don't have to work. But I go back and I look at those talks that I did 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and they're embarrassing. (laughs) Really, truly, I go, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I stood in front of a group of people and said that because it seems so weak and lame and shallow and all that i couldn't do it to do it again and and um so i've changed so much during that time and the world's changed so much during that time and then during covid which was supposed to last a few weeks um i was rescued by in my teaching by the generosity of Dr. Holly Hudley, and we did a brief series on the Lord's Prayer, which, frankly, Holly reminded me of that, and I didn't remember it. She said, we've already done a series on the Lord's Prayer. I said, we did? So, if I can't remember it, you're off the hook. I mean. But this time around was actually stimulated by questions that I've been getting from some of you about the liturgy that we use Um, across the plaza, and I got some emails about specific phrases in the Lord's Prayer that you have trouble with, and so I thought maybe I would do that. When I was teaching a class here called the Mind and Spirit class, I did a series on the Apostles' Creed, and it was tedious because I did it phrase by phrase. Some of you may remember teachings on the Gospel of John uh, of Thomas. You wanted to pull your hair out, yeah. So um, I'm not going to do another series on the Apostles' Creed. I did. I offered a creed in here a few weeks ago. That's from Progressive Christianity. It's on their website that you can go and look. It's a creed that we could use. Um, If you would like, sometimes I will tell you, those of you who don't go into worship because you can't stomach some of the liturgy, the words, the hymns, and so forth, maybe a way to think about that so that you can embrace that in a better way. That's not what I'm going to do today. I don't have any need to try to make relevant the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed because they aren't. They were written in a pre-Copernican worldview, and if you take them at just a level of reading through them, you can't say, I believe in those things, because we don't have that worldview anymore. You can embrace them as liturgical theater, but not as, gee, I really believe this. So, um, besides... As I said last week, when one recites the Apostles' Creed, you're focused on beliefs, not on following, and not on the life of Jesus. In the Apostles' Creed, the life of Jesus is reduced to a comma, and everything else is about what you should or should not believe. So, if you remember back a few weeks ago, I began my class in here by teaching my version of a Zen teaching story called the Guru's Cat. You remember that story? the The, the story was about is about a, a guru who had a cat, and they he tied the cat during evening meditation at the at the ashram at the monastery, so that the cat would not disturb people who, when they gathered to meditate, uh, the cat died. The guru got another cat. They tied that cat. The guru died. Another guru came. They kept tying the cat. Then eventually somebody wrote a book about how to tie cats during evening worship. Then somebody else said that's wrong. They wrote another book. They had a split about cat tying during worship. All right. The point of the story is that people, that's us, adopt and embrace and practice All kinds of religious rituals and beliefs without having any understanding of where they come from. Now, I am very, very much in favor of ritual. I think ritual is essential in doing the work toward transformation. And we have all sorts of rituals in our culture. We do them all the time. But I'm talking specifically about rituals that have to do with identity and meaning and purpose. Um, and, And my assertion is that we have to move from mindless practices to what I'm calling mindful mysticism. Mindful mysticism is a very important thing for me. So for many people, their faith is like this. They were given by their tribe some clothes to wear, and they were told, we were told, I was told, this is your faith, wear it. And we do, and we wear it for a variety of reasons. Some people wear their faith only when they come to religious gatherings, not any other time. They can put it on, they go home, and they can take it off. And, and, and those who do engage in singing hymns, saying prayer, repeating creeds, each of us has figured out a way to make the singing, praying, and reciting okay, at least during that block of time. I, I've said that um, if you were to accuse anybody who comes to church here, of doing what we confess to do in the prayer before we take communion on Sunday, we would sue you because nobody would want to admit that they were guilty of that sort of thing. So over a period of time, um, these clothes no longer fit. (laughs) But we still put them on. We make ourselves fit into them. I try to get people to take these clothes off and to risk putting something else on. And over the years, I've taken some hits for doing that in sermons or classes. Um, It seems permissible that we can grow in every other arena of life than in our religion. Early on, someone in my family, I think it was one of our parents, came to hear me um, preach. And afterward, um, I think it was my mother, said, um, William, that's what they would call me because they couldn't adapt to change. Said, William, do you really believe so-and-so? And I said, yes, I do. And um, my mother said, well, you can't believe that. And I said, why? And she said, well, you just weren't raised that way. (laughs) You know, I was raised to believe that the atom was the smallest particle of matter. That's the way I was raised. Wouldn't it be stupid to cling on to that just because that's the way I was raised? I was raised to believe a lot of things that none of us believe anymore. So early on in in my teaching, preaching, I would get uh, comments like, um, I'm not comfortable with what you're teaching. I would say, why is that? Well, I'm just not used to it. Okay, get used to it. (laughs) Or uh, somebody said, when are you going to stop debunking the Bible? I'm not debunking the Bible. I'm sharing what's going on in the field of religious studies out there. Some guy took me to lunch and said, what if your teaching is wrong? And I said, that's why you need to get involved for yourself in reading some of the things that I'm suggesting. Don't take my word for it. Check it out yourself. But don't read books just to confirm your already held beliefs. That's like trying to find an old science book that says the atom is the smallest part of matter that exists. And you can point to it and say, hey, the atom is, you can search long enough to find anything that will support your prejudice. So I know there are some risks in teaching what I am about the Lord's Prayer, and it may be that it sounds like I'm biting the hand that feeds me, but I think that we need to change some of the form and content of our worship. The The Lord's Prayer does not contribute to good religious or spiritual literacy when we encourage people to affirm I believe in a larger-than-male entity that's out there somewhere, our Father in heaven. That's not helpful. Now, the phrase that we're going to look at today leads to the worst theology imaginable, and we say it every Sunday. And we're not aware of its effect on us. About once a month... I visit with a friend of mine. We no longer do it in person because he's not able to, so we do it on Zoom. He is a man who is in hospice care, home hospice. And um, I don't know how much longer he's going to be with us, his mind is as bright as can possibly be it's just his body that's betraying him he's an incredibly brilliant guy very creative got a wide variety of interests has introduced me to ai and things that i would otherwise not know anything about and one of his hobbies is creating cartoons and as you know if you get here early i love cartoons so he draws some cartoons for me and um By the way, if you know somebody who's in hospice and they're able to do it, one of the greatest gifts that you can give them is to ask them to do you a favor. Make them feel useful, you know, so that they are doing something. So anyway, this week he showed me a cartoon and I said, can I have that? That was exactly what I'm trying to work on for Ordinary Life this week. And he said, sure. So he graciously gave me this cartoon Now, for those of you who can't read in the back, one fish is saying to another, we need to change the water, and the other fish is saying, what water? Now, there are some among you who may recognize that this phrase likely originated with David Foster Wallace, a um, postmodern novelist. because in a talk that Wallace gave he talked about this older fish who swam by these two younger fish and as the older fish was swimming by the two younger fish the older fish said hey boys how's the water and swam on and one of the younger fish looked at the older the other fish and said what the hell is water that's our condition we're in water all the time We." Jump in a pool of water when we come here. We jump in a pool of water when we go to worship. You jump in another pool of water when you step out of here, turn on your radio, go home, turn on the television set. That's the water in which we live, and it affects us. We're not aware, and we're not aware of how what surrounds us influences us so proudly. I I, I like my friend's cartoon better than the Foster Wallace thing. Because uh, my friend's cartoon goes further. Instead of saying, just notice the water, it says, we need to change the water. So here's the phrase that we're going to focus on in the Lord's Prayer today. Now get your thinking caps on, because I'm going to ask you a question. You might be called on to come up here. So In Luke's version, the phrase is, and lead us not into temptation. In Matthew's version, it is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And the way we say it in our liturgy is, and um, lead us not into a t- temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I keep reminding you that the prayer that is used in Christian liturgies, that's Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox, is not in the Bible. Well, that comes as a surprise to some people, but it's true. Now, here's where I'm going to ask you to use your noggin. What kind of God is this phrase asking us to imagine? Anybody want to try? What kind of God is this phrase asking us to imagine? God leads you into temptation just to tempt you. And if God really loved you, wouldn't do that, right? This is football season. Um, I have an ongoing fight with a woman here on the staff, Melinda Owens, whom I really love. I love Melinda. She thinks the Philadelphia Eagles are a football team. And uh, she she got on me the other week by saying she just hated it that people compared Patrick Mahomes to Tom Brady. And I said, Melinda, I don't compare Patrick Mahomes to Tom Brady. I compare him to Jesus. Anyway... (laughs) really got her (laughs) goat so here is this cartoon from the new yorker god is saying i can't deal with any famines massacres or epidemics right now i gotta help this guy sink a foul shot that's the god that this prayer asks us to imagine This is the God, by the way, that most people believe in. It is the God that atheists do not believe in. How could a loving, all-powerful God have allowed this, and in this blank you can put anything, a fatal disease, a catastrophe, a car crash, an unfaithful spouse, a financial reversal? The line is as long as a CVS receipt. How could a loving God have compared this to happen to me? If God really loves me, God's all-powerful. And on the other side of this is reflected what some of you may remember if you're close to being my age. There was a comedian (laughs) by the name of Flip Wilson. How many of you remember Flip Wilson? Oh, my God. Flip Wilson was just so funny. I wanted to grow up and be like him. You know, he, was the, he got the reputation of being the really first African-American hit on public television. And he created this character, Geraldine. You remember Geraldine? And Geraldine kept saying, the devil made me buy this dress. Now, you laugh at that. But it is reflected in a theology we express every time we do something that's out of line and we say, I don't know what got into me. Mm -hmm. Because we don't want to take personal responsibility for the crappy thing we just did. Folks, good theology matters. And bad theology is destructive good religion matters and, and I, I don't want to be an alarmist but I'm alarmed I, I, a man I respect is one of the most astute political social commentary commentators of our time said just this week that the greatest threat facing the United States today is not a foreign adversary like Al Qaeda but rather what he called Christian nationalism. And Christian nationalism exists because people are biblically, religiously, scientifically ignorant. I didn't say stupid. They're sly as foxes. But they're ignorant when it comes to the very things that we're talking about right now. I I may be sounding naive, or grandiose, or both. But I think if people prayed what this phrase in the Lord's Prayer actually means, we might not be in the mess we're in today. So, what does it mean? What's the history of this phrase? When those who first offered it, what did it mean to them? I thought you would never ask. So, remember some of the things we've said about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus didn't write it. Jesus didn't teach it to his disciples. Uh, Followers of Jesus crafted it in the years after his execution, long before there were any creeds. Up until the middle of the first part of the 320's, something like that, the the Christian communities didn't focus on what you believed. They focused on what you did on how you behaved. Belief didn't come until later when we had to get the movement to conform and everybody to agree to the same thing. Then we focused on belief. But they didn't start in the beginning and the prayer wasn't about what you believed. It was about a relationship to the sacred and to each other. So the only thing that you can find in this phrase that we're looking at today in the Jesus narrative that could possibly be reflected is that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus right before betrayal and being handed over, which is one of the most powerful phrases in all of Scripture, being handed over. Jesus prays, Father, if there is any way, get me out of this he didn't blame god for getting him into it and nowhere else in the jesus narrative is there anything that would lead one to believe that at any other time did jesus pray or teach anything that it would lead to the construction of this phrase he did even in the garden of gethsemane urge us to stay awake which we couldn't do it's a metaphor it's a parable it's not literal. Wake up to the water we're in. So one scholar says that after the execution of Jesus, and the followers return to synagogue worship, searched the scriptures to see if they were wrong about Jesus. They could figure out what in the world just happened to them in the time they had spent with him. This, this scholar says that these people had their bags packed. They were ready to go. Because they thought at any moment Jesus was going to come back or that there was going to be this political transformation of the empire in which they lived and things were going to be very, very, very different. Well, that didn't happen. So in the meantime, they were pressured by their their families to give up this silly belief. And um, they wouldn't do it they were convinced he'd spoken with such authority and brought such new life to them that they wouldn't relent, but they were pressured, pressured, pressured. Don't let us give in to that. That's one way of understanding the prayer. So some scholars, other scholars say this, this, this phrase was added as their communal prayer as a request And a reminder to keep them from caving in to the pressure that was around them. Now, there's some other scholars who date this prayer maybe 20 years later. And they say that it developed maybe around the time the split in the Christian Jewish, the Jesus follower, I call it Christian, the Christian Jewish community was about to split. So you have Mark. Matthew and Luke written before that split. You have a split, then you have the Gospel of John after that. And then during this time, you have some documents that have been discovered, like the Didache and others, where this prayer is in in the Didache, by the way, in a form of how they worshipped before Constantine got a hold of the church. And so there was this pressure brought to bear on others of them, stay in the synagogue, don't leave. This would be like our parents not wanting us to go join the civil rights movement if they were racist or something like that that kind of thing. So the society at that time was defined by belonging, so this is a big deal. Now you also have to keep in mind that what we read in whatever version of the English Bible you want to read was translated from the Latin which was translated from the Greek, which was translated from the Aramaic. You ever played gossip? (laughs) I was thinking about doing that today, actually having about a dozen people come up, and in one person's ear, I was going to whisper, Tom asked Margaret to get him a bacon cheeseburger with a large order of fries, but she brought him a cashmere sweater instead. And whisper that to one person and just have it passed along down the line and see what would happen at person 12. I don't think it would be the same. Do you? And yet there are people today who believe that God dictated the Bible in such a way that it arrived in English with no error or inaccuracy whatsoever. So the scholars that I trust, and I trust these scholars in the same way that I trust my medical professionals. I count on them to be up to date in their knowledge of medicine and pharmaceuticals and what they treat me. So I trust the biblical scholars that I read just like that, that they're up to date with information about what's coming out of biblical archaeology and religious language research and all that sort of stuff. And and these, these scholars say that a more useful translation of this phrase is, keep me open to your love and presence when the events of life occur to pull me apart. And there is going to be inevitable life events that will do that to you and me. I mentioned earlier that uh, to me one of the most powerful statements and experiences in the biblical Jesus narrative is uh, in that Garden of Gethsemane experience. And it says that Jesus was handed over. Now there are some of you in this room who know precisely what that's like. You've, You've experienced being handed over because of some illness over which you had no control. When I hear now that someone is about to have open heart surgery and it's appropriate, I call them and ask them if they would like me to send them the piece that I wrote, I've written since my open heart surgery called things I wish I had known before I had open heart surgery, that my anesthesiologist and physician had no time to tell me or they thought I'd. They do it so often that it was not necessary. But I wish that there people told me that there were some things that were going to happen when I got on that gurney, that for five days I'd be handed over. I have a dear friend who had a double lung transplant some time ago, and um, for three weeks he lay in a hospital bed like this, unable to move his arms for three weeks imagine, you can't pick your nose or do anything else. I have been with people, as you have too, some of you, some of you have been these people who have been so grief-stricken that they disappeared. Their observing ego, what Freud called their observing ego, there was nobody home. So what I want to say is that the God Jesus introduces us to protects us from nothing. And I also want to say that the God Jesus introduces us to sustains us in everything. that experience of sustenance is going to be dependent on our faith and trust. And not being cute. But if you wait to have a daily spiritual practice until you're handed over, it's too late. You can't learn a foreign language the moment you go to another country. You've got to get it ahead of time. So, there is no evil cosmic being out there creating trials and difficulties and problems. Many of our difficulties come directly from us, from the water in which we choose to swim. We make wrong. Choices, we make ill informed choices, we operate out of ignorance. Sometimes we regress to being emotionally immature people, we operate out of false beliefs, we operate out of misleading philosophies. So Jesus didn't write the Lord's Prayer, it was created by followers of his as part of their liturgy. They did it to keep his memory alive. They did it to strengthen their identity as we are those who follow this man. It's a prayer intended for communal use. It's our father, not my father. And when it comes to this phrase, this phrase held them together under fire. That is to say, those who followed him and who continued his teaching And even more, his practices were subjected to the same treatment he got. Persecution, many instances, death, and so they prayed, be with us during these times. I don't think many of us are likely to be persecuted for the beliefs that we hold out there. But just as we know more about science today than to assert that the atom is the smallest thing there is, We know much, much, much more now about the first two or 300 years of the Jesus movement. And this is because, just as in the areas of science, there have been discoveries, even in the last 80 to 100 years, that have yielded so much information. By the way, these people were not shunned or persecuted because of what they believed. I want to be clear about that. Today, the focus of Christian fundamentalism is, do you believe in the virgin birth? At the time of Jesus, virgin births were a dime a dozen. They were persecuted for strictly political reasons. And the scandal was Jesus. I mean, you read, um, Paul writes that the scandal is God raised Jesus from the dead. It's not the raising from the dead that's a scandal. You get that? That happened all the time in that mythological world. It was that Jesus was raised from the dead. This nobody said, I'm a child of God, and so are you. So, if you remember nothing else about today, it is God does not lead you into temptation. No loving parent does that. We want to lead our children away from trouble. I, I spent years working in and with people in the Jesus Seminar, Borg and Crossing, or two. It was so much fun. It was energizing work. I got to meet so many interesting people, and and in spite of what I'm about to say, uh, or how it might be interpreted, it was so educational. It was so enlightening. But I I have to confess, I don't think we know with absolute certainty anything Jesus said. I do know that the word that's in the Greek manuscripts of temptation is also translated or can be translated material goods. So do not let us be deceived by the materialistic way of life. Boy, that's relevant for us, right? I got tired of hearing so many Black Friday ads. Do not let us become destructive. And then we might as well, you've seen this theme I'm sure, lead me not to temptation no hell, just follow me, I know a shortcut. Folks, we have to take responsibility for the water in which we live. And taking responsibility isn't about blame. It's about recognition that we are responsible for creating our lives and for allowing what, the, what context we're in to shape our lives. So I want to give you again the way that um, Neil Douglas Klotz translates this phrase. He says, um, do not let me be seduced by that which would divert me from my true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. So when I pray this prayer, I'm praying that I don't be seduced or deluded by the surface things. And I don't want to become so inward or self-absorbed that I don't act humanely. Now, if you're wondering what the practical application of this is, I hope that just having this information is practical. Um, if more people had it, maybe we wouldn't be in the mess we're in out there. And, and I don't want to harp on Mike Johnson, but what he believes as one of the top leaders of this country politically um, is important. He said that he, the way to learn how he feels about any issue is to read the Bible. I've read the Bible several times. His quote was, That's my worldview. That's what I believe. Now, what does that mean? What, you know, I ask you, to, what kind of God does that phrase want us to imagine? What, that, that statement coming from anybody, if you want to know what I believe, just read the Bible. What does that mean? What do they want? What does the person who says that want us to think that they believe? That it's okay to sell your daughter? That's in the Bible. The question of faith, Now I'm talking about any faith, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever. In the context of that particular faith, the questions are, who am I, who are you, how are we to live? And in the Judeo-Christian faith following Jesus, those questions have to do with being created in the image and likeness of God, understanding that this is a God of love, a God of compassion, a God who created all who are and all that is. And the origin story that we've been given is not conducive to that. We are taught to be our worst critics. Look at how you talk to yourself sometimes, how we judge each other. It's not okay to judge people except those who don't use their turn signal. I was checking out at Whole Foods. Um, And and you know, in this culture, men are taught to idealize and objectify women. Female form has been an object of art from the beginning. I'm just trying to excuse myself, okay, (laughs) for the story that you're about to hear. There, there was this incredibly, incredibly attractive woman checking me out behind the counter. She was tall, she was shapely, she was, had a low-cut dress on, <clears throat> and she had tattoos. A lot of people who work at Whole Foods have tattoos, but this is unlike any body art I have ever seen she had running from one side of her chest to the other, the nativity scene. And the star of Bethlehem was right here going down. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to tell this story. And above, right below the star, above the top of the manger, you I mean the thing you couldn't see that unless uh, you couldn't see that there was a, a phrase that said child of god and i'm just gaping <laughs> <laughs> and finally that gaping becomes apparent and 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 i just said uh <clears throat> that, um that that's the most unusual tattoo i've ever seen and she never batted an eye she just said mister if you're going to put a tattoo there, you better be careful about what it says. (laughs) I said, I agree. (laughs) Took my groceries and went home. (laughs) If we could see those words on everybody, if we had them tattooed on our hearts, souls inside our eyelids so that we believe them, And so that we believe them about each other. Real religion ought to be about making that kind of compassionate relationship happen. It ought to be about making things less false, less harmful to all people everywhere. So I want my teachings to be consistently less incorrect. I don't want to teach that the atom is the smallest thing if it's not. I want to disorient you so you can orient yourself. And my faith and belief is that if we follow the teachings of Jesus, we're going to teach treat each other like child of God. Real Christianity is a lot more about this than what you believe. Do we... Follow Jesus or merely believe in Jesus? Do we love as he loved? O cosmic birther of all who are and all that is, do not let us be distracted from who we are and what you have called us to do. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So, Holly and I will see you right here next Sunday. Take care.